Good morning. Good Monday morning to you, Theo 102. Happy Monday, everybody. Yes. Got We're a long delighted list of things to, to talk about here. Yes. Should no. I read off the list? Yes. Number one, book. Get it. We keep pitching the book over and over again. This Wednesday in section, we're going to be discussing it. Bring the book. Read the book. Chapters four and five for this week, for those of you who want an auditory reminder rather than the schedule on our website. Um, we'll be discussing it in sections. Looking forward to it. These are good chapters. Number two, starting next week, we do not meet for section on Wednesdays. We actually meet here on Wednesdays for your what you now know as your Friday Friday panel or debate, and not only does that occur next week, it's going to be for four weeks in a row. We're doing that. I know, I know, it's weird. You can clap, you can be sad, whatever you want to do. Okay. It is the way it is, so you just accept it, it's good. Um, you might want to know the reason for that, we'll just tell you right now. It's because Bauman, this space is a unique space on campus. Indeed, it's actually a unique space in Oregon in terms of its acoustics and auditory stuff. And so the Portland Symphony is actually going to be here on a particular date. And the music department also uses this for their competitions of various kind, for, cor for chorus and instruments. And we have to give way to them and just kind of work around it. So we compromised and we knew we had to cut something and you know, we, hand we wrung our hands for many, many hours about how. And this is just the way it is. So starting next week for four weeks in a row, we're going to a Monday-Wednesday schedule in this room without section. You will meet in section again, and, and there still will be readings assigned from this book, a lot of readings, and then you'll be expected to come back to section after those four weeks, having read a really big chunk of this, almost the whole book, and then you'll be back on track. So. Yes. Oh, there I am. Okay, great. You're back. <laughs> I'm back. Okay. So <laughs> now I can't remember what the third okay, thing so was. Okay, so that's okay. That's why I, yeah, have, the, yeah. I have the list, so you okay. don't have to remember. Number three, history hoedown. Yes, that's right. Okay, it's one, my favorite thing. One thing that has come up frequently, I think, in the past few weeks, something that I think all of us who are professors wish we could devote more time to is this question of history. And we've heard it in a lot of questions, really detailed, smart questions about like, okay, but then did this happen and this text says this and how can these, you know. I just want to say to you, if you care about history and if you care about reading the Bible and trying to work out questions like, did this happen? And does it matter if it happened? Did it, quote, happen on some other spiritual level? What about symbolic readings? How do you deal with that? I just want to affirm, number one, that those are the right questions. But I want to pose something to Dr. Payne. Yes. Because she is actually an historian. That's her academic identity. She's an historian of American Christianity, but also just broadly Christian church history. That's right. So I want to ask you this question. I have noticed this weird trend lately, and maybe it's just always been a trend. Maybe that's part of the question. Is this just lately, or, or has this always been the thing? Where history becomes this question of like, it's not about data and evidence and argumentation. It's just about that grand, old, wonderful rhetorical technique, maybe the most powerful rhetorical technique you can do, which is just bald assertion. Like, can you make something historical by just being like, I just believe it, therefore it's history? Or can you negate history by saying, I don't believe it, therefore it's not history? Or if you have me on videotape saying something, I can just be like, no, I didn't say it. Like, we see a lot of that culturally now in the news and in politics, and it's disturbing and it's confusing, I think, for our readings of the Bible and faith history because this all just seems like it's gotten wacky. Is that a fair assessment, that it's gotten crazy? Well, we do live in a really interesting time. I, I'm fascinated by it, but I'll say this about history. I think one thing that's important to remember is that the way, and Dr. Gupta talked about this a little bit on Friday, which is the way that we think about history Ha is not consistent over time. So this idea of what history is and how we measure it actually changes from generation to generation, which is not a huge surprise because 
you know, any particular context, um, people think about things in a particular way. And so we, you know, if, if we think about things in different, differently according to our cultural location, we can say we think about things differently according to our location in time, if that makes sense. That might be a little too Star Trek for you, but that's how I like to think about it. One of the particular things about our recent history is that we tend to look at history like an empirical science, which is to say, for those of you STEM science-y type people. Any biologists out there? Yeah, STEM people? we tend to think about how we measure the past or how we interpret our Christian past in terms of can you test it, can you repeat it? Well, you know, you can't repeat it, but can you look at it in terms of like measuring it scientifically? So using archeology, span like thinking about, you know, creation from a scientific perspective. And it's, I'm not saying that those things aren't worthwhile. I'm saying that other Christians, it, not all Christians have thought about things in that way. So if we look at, you know, like the medieval um, biblical interpreters, they oftentimes, I and mean, you would know this better than I do, they oftentimes don't think in those like empirical historical modes at all, but they still find a lot of meaning from the text. But one of the things that to me is really important as a historian is we have to think about what it means when we do history and what that says about us. So I think of history not as saying like I'm going to uncover a particular thing about whether or not it's factual, but really in a big picture big picture sense, history and doing history is making meaning out of our lives. So I was asking a few of y'all's classmates right before class like what's one iconic moment that has happened in your freshman year so far? A moment that everybody would know about um, and they couldn't think of anything other than orientation. Maybe you've thought of another iconic moment. Um, but what is the, if I were to ask all of you, what happened at orientation? I would get a lot of different responses. And they wouldn't, I, I wouldn't think just because I heard different versions of it that one of y'all necessarily was lying or, or getting it wrong. It's just you had a different perspective on that. Mm. So. What do you think about history? Well, we're out of time here for this kind of thing, for me to tell you what I think about history. But I will say <laughs> this. Clearly, My microphone tur turned on. Clearly, we've just cracked open the door to a really huge question that you can continue to think about and that we're going to continue to think about in this class in various ways. Today, however, we introduce to you our speaker, Dr. Javier Garcia. Perhaps you remember him yes, from past lectures. Yes, Dr. Garcia. He is a theologian. His PhD is from Cambridge, University of Cambridge in the UK, in theology. In fact, he was just in South Africa. I don't know if any of you have ever been to South Africa. He was just in South Africa for 10 days giving a lecture on theology. So he's super smart. We're really looking forward to what he has to say today. We're repeating the creedal phrase. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father because it's just that important, and we need to keep talking about what it means for Jesus to have, as many Christians say, died for our sins. So we're going to recite the creed. Okay, we've got a lot of creed stuff here. I'm afraid of forgetting the creed. Is anyone I else know, afraid of forgetting the creed? I know. I get a little nervous about it. I've got it written down. Actually, okay, entertain them. I'm going to walk over and get my written okay. version of the creed, which I forgot. I don't hear the entertainment. Now that I have happening. the microphone, and now that I'm in front of everybody, okay, what do you all need to know? Favorite song? Oh, my middle name is Louise. I can't tell you Brian R. Doak's middle name. My favorite song has got to be Billy Joel, Lullaby. Okay, go ahead. Let's recite the creed, friends. <laughs> I believe in God, God the, the Father, Father Almighty, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I, I believe in Jesus Christ, Christ his only Son, our, our Lord, Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. 
He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Please welcome Dr. Javier Garcia welcome. to the stage. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes, we're live. Okay, good. Can everyone see this board? Good. Can you read what's on it? Okay, because I have horrible handwriting. My mother has always told me that. I'm so sorry, Mom. Um, okay, so welcome. Uh, today we are going to do something different. We're going to completely forget the phrase for today, uh, which I, from the creed, you know, is uh, I'm seated at the right hand of the Father. Seems like we've gotten that far. Um, we're actually going to backtrack a little bit to a very short phrase, was crucified, was crucified. I'm sorry, I was in South Africa, so I'm back now, and that's why we're backtracking. But the question is, why did Jesus Christ have to die for our sins? Like, how exactly does he deal with the problem of sin? And so at this point, we're talking about one thing, big, big uh, term in theology, atonement. Hands up. Has anybody ever heard of this? Uh, okay, good, good, good. Um, so in everyday language, you say that you atone for something if you're going to repair uh, some wrongdoing that you've done, right? So if you crash into somebody else's car, you atone for that by paying whatever debt you have to the person who owns the car, right? In religious contexts, we have uh, the term atonement, which is very rich for thinking about repairing for wrongdoing, for sin specifically. So if you think of uh, Judaism, the most important day in the Jewish calendar is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So in a religious context, atonement is very important as well. And in Christianity, there's a whole new element uh, that we think about, and you can see that in this word, at one meant. Okay, if you break that up into three, at one meant, which is reconciliation. How can sinful humanity become one with the holy God? How can sinful humanity have fellowship with the most holy God? Okay, so when we're talking about atonement, we're engaging a whole number of questions that have to do with what sin is, why the cross, why send the Son, and our own state now in terms of God. So it's not only a past event, but a present reality. As uh, we heard with uh, Dr. Gupta, it's... Um, he is risen indeed. You could say he was crucified, and so there's a, a present um, consequence to that. Now, I do want to say, uh, before we get started here uh, in teaching mode, um, that there are two things that you should keep in mind. So, the atonement is kind of an open debate when it comes to Christianity. This is what makes it so exciting. There are theologians who think about this, who debate about it, who disagree. And so what I want to say is that there are Christians in good conscience who disagree on what doctrine of the atonement Christians should hold. Okay? So if you disagree with somebody over the atonement and they say, well, that's not biblical, you should say to them, aha, let's have a conversation about whether or not this understanding of the atonement is biblical or not, right? There's reasonable engagement with the scripture, and that's how we get to these theories of atonement. 
So it's an open question, and you can't point at somebody who has a different understanding of the atonement and say you're not a Christian or you have not understood the Bible. Um, so also, it makes it very exciting. Who knows? Maybe one of you will be the next big theologian of the atonement, okay? And that way, you can atone for sleeping in class, for example. You get this? Okay, atonement, nobody got that joke. Okay, uh, at least I got two people, maybe some other people. Yes, uh, maybe because you're asleep, you didn't get it. Anyways, um, so, yes, so two things. Don't judge others, um, and, um, and yeah, and there are many, many kind of theories about this. So what I want to do in this lecture is to go through different theories of the atonement that have been prominent at different times in history. So Christian theologians have been thinking about this question since the beginning, since the cross, basically, since we have was crucified. And if you're paying attention, uh, the creed itself doesn't really give us an understanding of salvation. It just gives us some historical facts. Was crucified, died, was buried. On the third day, he rose again, moving on, right? So if you're looking to the creed for a theology of salvation, you're going to have to look a little deeper. There's another very famous creed called the Nicene Creed that says, Christ came for us men and for our salvation. So there's a clue. Okay, he came to save us. But again, there's not a developed sense of how that happens. So the work of Christians as they read scripture uh, is to come up with understandings of this. I also want you, as I'm going through these theories, to think about where you might fall in uh, your understanding of the atonement. So newsflash, every church has some belief about the atonement. It's reflected in your songs, it's reflected in the sermon, it's maybe even reflected in the way that you live, right? How you uh, live in relation to the cross. So, uh, as uh, we go through this, hopefully you can think about where you fall in. I'll also talk a little bit about what Bible verses uh, correspond to each of these theories and what historical factors might have played a role in developing those theories, okay? So are we good to go? Let's roll. All right, so the first uh, big, big theory you need to know is Christus Victor, which means Christ the Victor, which means Christ the Victorious One, right? Um, so this developed in the early church, and many Christians were compelled by the idea that what happened in the cross was Christ defeating his m massive enemies, right? These kind of supernatural enemies, whether that's principalities and powers in the world, sin, death, and the devil. There were many different theories to understand how Christ triumphed over his enemies, okay? And so if you think this is just the early church, you would be wrong. Many Pentecostal churches today, charismatic and Pentecostal churches that emphasize the Holy Spirit, also believe in the Christus Victor model. So if you've heard songs that are all, are all about Christ's victory, his victory over uh, powers and principalities, you are in the Christus Victor model, okay? So uh, there are different ways of thinking about the Christus Victor uh, reading, and I'm going to do something that we haven't done before, which is flip this. What's up? Okay, great. There we go. That was, that was pretty seamless. I thought it was going to fall. Okay, can we have a little clap? Okay, okay, good, 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 good. Awesome. Yeah, party trick, party trick. So now, hopefully, others can do the same. Um, so, Christus Victor breaks down into two different types of theories. The first is ransom, ransom to Satan. The idea that humanity is somehow captive to the devil. 
And what God is doing in the cross is presenting Jesus as the ransom to the devil and making an exchange. So I don't know, have, have any of you seen the movie Taken? Liam Neeson, Taken. Yes, hands up. And do you like the movie? Yes, no, maybe so. Action. Um, so what is Taken about? It's basically one of the coolest movies ever. Um, and a father and his daughter go to Paris, um, and his daughter gets kidnapped in Paris, right? And actually, she calls her dad because she's with her friend, and she says, Dad, I'm about to be kidnapped. And he actually works for the CIA. So he's on the phone with her, and he's like, don't worry, we're going to get through this. So the kidnappers don't know that the father is a CIA agent, and they messed with the wrong guy, right? So when he's on the phone with the kidnappers, he says the following, and I'm going to do my best Liam Neeson voice, okay? Are we ready for this? All right. So this is Liam Neeson. Um, let's see. So, so this is what he says. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that will be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you, I will find you, and I will kill you. That's Liam Neeson, okay? So some snaps, some snaps. Uh, Liam Neeson, okay, good. So the ransom theory is similar to this uh, in the sense that Christ is, um, so God rescues us, as it were, from the devil as our kidnapper. But what's interesting about the ransom to Satan theory in the early church is that it involves a little bit of deception. So God presents Jesus as the ransom for humanity. So God and the devil make a deal. The devil's like, I get Jesus, and God's like, okay, and then I get humanity. So basically, I'm going to win back humanity. But what the devil does not know is that in taking Jesus, he's taking the Son of God, who is fully human and fully divine. So the devil sees the humanity of Jesus and thinks that he's going to kill him. So on, on the cross, he's like, ha-ha, I destroyed Jesus, right? But because Christ conquers the cross, you know, Jesus conquered the grave, all that stuff, his divine nature destroys um, death, and God is left with humanity and Jesus, and the devil is left with nothing, right? So, hallelujah, right? So uh, some of the early church fathers used some interesting metaphors to talk about this. One is the fish hook. So it's almost like you're going fishing. Um, so here, God deceives the devil as if uh, Jesus is the bait, right? And the devil bites onto the bait. And so Gregory of Nyssa, who is a famous theologian who developed uh, this theory, says the following. In order to secure the ransom on our behalf might easily be accepted by him who required it, the deity was hidden under the veil of our nature, that is, with a ravenous fish. The hook of deity might be gulped down along with the bait of flesh, right? So basically the hu humanity of Jesus tricks the devil, he overcomes it with the divinity, all's well. There was also a mousetrap theory which was used to develop this. Jesus' humanity was the cheese and uh, his divinity was the trap, okay? 
So in the, in the Bible, there are a number of verses that might be used for Christus Victor, and th- these verses talk a lot about defeating enemies. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. Or Hebrews 2.14, since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Right, so if you're talking about Christus Victor, uh, there's also a Romans, you know, uh, Christ has come, uh, and he's, uh, his love is greater than the powers and principalities of the world, etc. Now, there are two main issues with this approach. You might already be guessing. One is that it implies that God deceives. God deceives the devil, tricks the devil. So God is using deceit. You have a moral issue there. If God can deceive the devil, does he deceive us? Right? Does he use trickery um, for greater goods? Now, in the Old Testament, you may remember, in some of the examples that we've read, there have been uh, examples of people lying but giving righteous lies. Right? So you have Rahab who lies to the spies and, and saves, uh, saves the Jews. Right? Uh, you also have um, the, the, people, the, the women who save Moses by lying right, and saying that uh, they've killed all the Hebrew boys, right? So there are certain righteous lies that, that happen in the Hebrew Bible, so you might actually be able to um, get around that. But then, uh, I might get the details wrong, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm just remembering off the cuff of my head. But the second thing is, it implies that the devil has authority. He has legitimate authority over humanity, and God is having to treat the devil as a type of rival who's his equal. So that's why he has to outsmart him. And so this is problematic because we want to say that God is much more powerful than the devil, so this would not work. So some people who didn't like the ransom theory moved on to recapitulation. Now, recapitulation has to do with this uh, term, the capita, or the head, right? So think about decapitation, has to do with the head. Recapitulation has to do with two representatives. Adam is a representative of humanity who failed. He was disobedient. Sin, death, uh, sin and death came into the world as well as corruption. And then Jesus undoes what the first Adam did. And so Jesus becomes the second Adam, the new head of humanity, right? And so here, this is more a theory of representation. There's no deceit. There's no um, need for the devil having authority. It really is a kind of dynamic between Adam and Christ. Christ coming to redeem what Adam Um, was not able to do uh, well. Now, what's interesting, too, is that with this theory, there's um, another kind of element of this. It's called theosis, or, let me just write it here, uh, and I will move in a second, divinization. That's what it means. So, theosis is the theory that, as human beings, we somehow become gods through faith. So if when we were with Adam, we were tied to the corruptible human nature, when we are tied to the representative Christ, we are able to participate in his divine nature and in that way become gods in a manner of speaking, right? So this is a way of talking about sanctification, that by being tied and unified with Christ, you participate in his divine nature and you become divine. 
So some people feel a little bit nervous about this whole theosis talk, like we're human beings, we're not gods. Um, but this is actually recapitulation and ransom. These types of atonement theories are very popular in Eastern Orthodoxy, Eastern Orthodox Christianity. In the, in, uh, so maybe you know some people who are interested by this type of theology. But in the West, divinization, people feel a little bit nervous that it might actually step on the creature-creator distinction, right? So God is God, we are human beings, and to talk about theosis is to somehow breach that gap, right? Um, so again, you might say that, okay, recapitulation to a certain extent, you might agree with that, but theosis might be problematic to you. So um, there are, there's a lot of evidence for this Adam-Christ conversation. Think about Romans 5. Um, think about 1 Corinthians 15, where there's this whole conversation from Paul uh, about what Adam did wrong and what Christ has done right. So just as one man brought death into the world, so too one man will defeat death, right, and, uh, and bring us salvation. So there's a lot of this conversation. And also, 2 Peter 1.4 uh, is a verse that some theologians use for, to talk about divinization. Because it says, you have been called to be partakers in the divine nature. And so, uh, some theologians say, aha, okay, in 2 Peter 1.4, there's an element of theosis, let's, let's talk about that. But like I said, some other people are a little bit more nervous about whether theosis um, is not something that we can warrant with Scripture or that we want to say. So, those are two ways of thinking about the Christus Victor model. As you might think that some, some readings of this are, are more helpful than others. Um, and maybe you've heard this Christus Victor language in Pentecostal churches. Um, so let's talk about the historical context for a second. In the early church, there were some of the worst persecution, persecutions that the church has ever known, right? So uh, whether it was the Roman Empire um, or, or, or other forces going against Christians and basically telling them to renounce their faith or be killed, right? So there was this huge debate in the early church about whether you should you know, kind of give in or not. There's a lot of martyrdom that happens. And so obviously within that context, you want to say that Christ triumphs over your enemies, over these like imperial powers, right? That Christ actually beats the devil. Even if you can't see it, that's what happened at the cross, right? There was also a resurgence of Christus Victor theology in the 20th century. Why do you think that might be? Well, after two world wars, when you think the end of the world is coming, when you're in Europe and there are basically like no men left because the Great War has like decimated um, Europe, you want to say that Christ has triumphed over these powers in a way that you might not see now, but that has happened and will be consummated, right? That will come to fulfillment eventually. So you can see how Christus Victor, whether it's ransom or recapitulation, has been very powerful existentially for Christians throughout time. And so maybe as you, as you read or um, listen to, to lyrics or, or read theology, you're going to see this uh, come up. Now, one big question with Christus Victor is the question that we've been talking about, which is theodicy. How does Christus Victor, this view that Christ is the victor, actually address ongoing suffering and evil in the world, right? This might be too triumphalistic. That's another way that people push back against a, a Christus Victor model. All right, so let's move on. Uh, we're moving into the second category, 
which is objective and subjective understandings of the atonement. Objective and subjective understandings of the atonement. So the objective side focuses on divine justice. Okay? Divine justice. So really, the question is, objectively, what is going on in the cross? What is going on in the Godhead? It's a very theological view, looking at um, God, the Father and the Son. What is happening here? Is there like a, an eternal divine plan where God sends the Son? Does the Son volunteer himself? Uh, and so that, those are the objective theories. Subjective theories are more about how are we supposed to respond to the cross? So it's not looking at the kind of what happened in God, but how are we as human beings supposed to respond? Uh, and so this is just for the sake of argument. Some, there are some of these that have more objective and more subjective. There's kind of a mix, but this is how they break down. So the first one you need to know about um, is St. Anselm in the Middle Ages. Um, very, very important thinker. He wrote in 1099 a book called Why the God-Man? Cur Deus Homo. Why the God-Man? And really, he just loved the Rolling Stones. I can't get no... Satisfaction. We know the song? Okay, okay. Very, I just love... It's like so much excitement, you know? Monday morning. Um, so, so, he was a Rolling Stone. And he was all about satisfaction. Now, the question is, what is it that um, irks divine justice, as it were? Um, for Anselm, it was a question of honor, God's honor. Human beings have so violated God's honor that humans owe a debt to God that they can never pay. So the debt is total but human beings have to pay it. And actually, the price of that debt is greater than all of creation. So by definition, it is impossible for the human being to pay it. So, the only solution is the God-man. So we saw why the God-man. The solution is the God-man, which is God sends his son, who is the mediator between God and man, and he can pay the price to restore the honor of God and pay the debt that humanity owes. So, in this way of thinking, Jesus volunteers himself to the Father and says, I will go, I will be the chosen one, and I will pay the debt they cannot pay, and I will give it to you. And so the Father accepts uh, that payment. And what is more, um, because Jesus does everything so perfectly, he also gives his merits to humanity as a kind of extra, right? So he pays their debt, so they're no longer in debt, but he also gives them his merits. So for Anselm, what's beautiful about this, this theory is that God shows his, his justice in paying the debt and also his mercy. So with this theory, we have divine justice and mercy in one, right? So uh, as we've talked about uh, in the previous lectures, you want to have justice and mercy in, uh, in a kind of complementary to one another, not in competition. And so, uh, for Anselm, the most important thing is that God is satisfied, right? His, the debt is satisfied, God is satisfied. Now, God steps into the breach with the God-man, God pays the debt, uh, Christ pays what we owe, and God receives a payment, 
What's powerful about this, the- this theory is that it presents an alternative to the problems here uh, with Ransom and recapitulation. Ansem famously hated the trickery and the authority that uh, were involved in the, in the ransom theory, right? So he comes up with this other one. It also takes sin very seriously. As you see in ransom uh, theories and, and Christus Victor, it's more about these powers and principalities. It's kind of out there. With Ansem, it's about what sins humanity has, has committed, right? Now let's talk about the intensification of this theory, which is penal substitution, which penal means punitive or punishment, and substitution is the substitute. So Christ comes to pay um, or to to be punished where we were supposed to be punished, right? So um, this is where the term comes from. So you see the difference between Anselm and a theologian like Luther, for example, and some would argue Augustine, it's not honor that's the issue, it's wrath. So maybe you have read the Bible at this point, a little bit of it, and you've noticed that God can get a little angry sometimes, right? Um, things can get intense in the Bible, and there's a lot of wrath language, right? So in penal substitution, the focus is how are we going to satisfy God's wrath? Because as sinners, we deserve punishment. And that punishment needs to be exacted either against us or against somebody else. And so in this theory, uh, for Anselm, we don't need to be punished because God is satisfied. So judgment is averted, whereas with penal substitution, justice is absorbed. That punishment is absorbed in Christ. And again, the, the kind of difference here is that instead of the son volunteering, as in the satisfaction theory, the father sends the son. To do this work like this is his mission right um and it also engages some questions about uh, uh, uh kind of this uh, it's a complicated understanding of how um, wrath and sin uh, relate to one another so really the point is only punishment can bring reconciliation and christ is the one who uh, is punished on our behalf so the big theologian here um, is martin luther and the reformers Uh, And Luther famously was obsessed with his own sin and would go to his confessor again and again and he would say, you know, I sneezed and I had a bad thought earlier today. And then Johannes Stopitz, his his confessor, would be like, Martin, go home. You know, he'd be like, no, 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 please forgive me, please forgive me, I need absolution. And in the medieval period, there was a lot of uh, imagery about Jesus being the judge, right? He will come to judge the living and the dead. So the sentimental Jesus that we have in our songs, who's like cuddly, that wasn't the deal in, 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 in um, the Middle Ages. So Luther was scared, right? He was scared about the coming judgment, and he started reading scripture. So you might have heard that in the Reformation, you have this return to scripture. And so Luther is reading Paul and all this language about law, law and gospel. So what happens when we have a law that we cannot fulfill and we are basically condemned by? Well, you need somebody who's going to come in, perfectly fulfill the law, and become a curse for us. So for Luther, Galatians 3.13, which says that on the cross, Christ became a curse for us, in reference to a a verse in Deuteronomy as well, becomes very important for him. All of Romans is like the letter, because 
you know, Paul is talking about the law and the gospel. We've been freed from the law. We are justified apart from works before the law. And so for Luther, this was true freedom. The true freedom of the gospel is that Christ has taken the punishment we deserve, and by, being, by believing in him, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. Now, what are some other important verses? Isaiah 53, right? Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray, we have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So uh, when it comes to penal substitution, there seems to be a lot of um, kind of biblical uh, backing. Uh, and again, it just depends how, how you want to read some of these verses. Um, also, in Christ alone, famous hymn, in Christ alone, who took on flesh, this one, um, the lines, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ, I live. So, in many evangelical circles, penal substitution is the anthem. It's the main belief, okay? Um, and so maybe you're recognizing this. It should be said that penal substitution has gone under fierce criticism from many, many angles. It is not a popular way of thinking about the cross nowadays. Uh, and in theology, there's been a lot of pushback uh, against this. Why? One, uh, it implies perhaps that within the Trinity there is a breach. Why would the Father do this to the Son and abandon his Son and forsake his Son? So, in other theories, you don't have this kind of father and son against one another, right? So for the father to punish the son, okay, maybe a little harsh, right? And if God's love triumphs over his mercy, why would you have such a, a mean God? Some people, especially outside of the Christian community, say that this is cosmic child abuse. Why would you torture and kill um, somebody uh, why not come up with another solution, right? Or at least not say that it was God's plan and that God did it to his own son. There are philosophical arguments. Can you really get somebody else to take the punishment for you if you're the guilty one, right? Shouldn't you serve that sentence or shouldn't there be some other response to that? Uh, and then uh, there's a gendered reading of penal substitution that it might be too masculine. It's all about violence, power, wrath. And so there, there are a lot of feminist critiques of penal substitution as kind of operating within a too masculine uh, uh, a worldview. Um, so it should be said, though, that many evangelicals have also pushed back uh, and tried to defend this. Famously, uh, John Stott, who was a British theologian, wrote the book The Cross of Christ, and he tries to respond to some of these critiques. All right, so moving on, moral exemplar is very, very simple. Um, Abelard, who was a contemporary of Anselm, said, no way, Jose, even though your name is Anselm, um, I have another theory. And the theory is that um, Christ has come to teach us how to love. And so by knowing who God is and seeing the cross, we are taught what perfect love is. And so we are supposed to follow Jesus in that. So basically, he's a moral teacher, and the cross is the epitome of that love. Uh, many people have pushed back because it doesn't really talk about any of these other elements um, and maybe a misreading of scripture. 
but it has been popular in some churches that emphasize love so much that there's no wrath language at all. And so there's a kind of subjective understanding. Um, and let's move on quickly to the last one, nonviolent atonement, which is basically a way of saying, what if we think about the cross in a totally different way? And this is more uh, late 20th century, uh, 21st century, along with feminist readings and pacifist readings of the cross. So what if Christ was like Gandhi or MLK, and he is absorbing the evil and sin of the world, right? So it's not God who sends Jesus to die for us, um, and it's not kind of this like objective thing that's happening. It's that human beings kill Jesus, and God allows it to happen to show us a nonviolent way of living, right? So Jesus absorbs that evil, he absorbs that sin, and when he resurrects, he teaches us a way to live that is nonviolent. And so you might think for people like Gandhi or MLK or other nonviolent resistors, this is a very powerful way of understanding the cross. There are other thinkers that we could talk about. Um, we don't have time, though. Just think of Romans 12.21, which states, do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. So that would be a reading of nonviolent atonement there. Um, all right, so I think we need to conclude. We have one minute left. I'm seeing our bosses over here being like... Um, so, to conclude, we have these three theories, Christus Victor, Objective and Subjective, Nonviolent Atonement, and I did want to say you are saved by the atonement, not by atonement theories, hallelujah, right? And so, but still, you should be informed about what ways of understanding the atonement there are out there. Thank you so much. Great job, Dr. Garcia. Dang, Thank that you was so, so good. much. So happy. My mind Thank is swimming. You.